Content warning. This episode includes discussion of drug use and suicide. For anyone who creates online content, the big goal is to have your content go viral. Whether it's TikTok or a YouTube video, an Instagram reel, or a Facebook photo, when something goes viral, the person who posted it is kind of quasi-famous for a few days or a week. This happened to me once, several years ago. I posted a video on Facebook, and it just took off like crazy. It wasn't even a video that I created personally, but people saw it and shared it, so it was seen by millions of people right on my Facebook profile page. So I was getting hundreds of friend requests every day from people I didn't know, and I declined all of them, of course. It was kind of fun, but also a little weird that suddenly my Facebook page was being viewed by so many people all over the world. For some people, having their photo go viral is not a good thing. That's what happened with my guest today, Sarah. She got in trouble for selling drugs. This was her first time ever being arrested, and she made the mistake of smiling for her booking photo. That's when things got crazy, and she was nicknamed in the press as the adorable drug kingpin. The other reason this story went viral was because of where Sarah's dad worked. His employer was the Drug Enforcement Agency. Sarah's dad was a DEA agent. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this is this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. Sarah's parents were divorced, so she ended up living with her mom and her stepdad. I lived with my mom, and she was remarried to my stepdad. I lived with them. They had my brother and sister, Grace and Jack, and on my dad's side, and I also have an older brother from 
the same parents. My dad was remarried to my stepmom, Kristen, and they have three boys. But with my dad's job with Drug Enforcement Agency, he was required to move and travel and live in all different places in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. So we were not always very close. And a lot of that was my own choosing. So she graduated from high school and went off to college. And like a lot of kids at that stage, she didn't know how to manage that new sense of independence. My mom was rather strict, just trying to keep me safe. So when I got to college, I realized that I had ultimate freedom and no one to tell me what to do or when to come home. And I just lost control very quickly. Once you have this ultimate freedom and you have that realization like, oh, well, no one will know if I don't come home tonight or if I do my chores or do my homework and there's no one to be accountable for you but yourself, it's easy to just go into your own desires and wishes without thinking of consequences. As a teenager, Sarah was taking medication for a few things, including anxiety but when she got to college, she thought she could self-medicate. I had been on antidepressants since I was 15 for generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder. I stopped very quickly in getting into college. Once I started to smoke pot, I realized or in my own thinking was, well, this makes me feel better, so I don't need to take medication anymore. Stop taking medication and replaced it with drugs and alcohol. And things went downhill pretty quickly. It started with marijuana, and it wasn't really much. It helped me relax. It helped me get rid of some anxieties. And I started to heavily rely on that as a coping mechanism. So whenever I was sad or I was celebrating or I was nervous, started to smoke. And about maybe a month after I first started regularly smoking weed, I had tried MDMA. MDMA is the drug more commonly known as ecstasy. That was my second illicit substance to try, and that really changed my life. And I thought that that was incredible. The feeling of being on drugs was something I hadn't experienced before, and I quickly just spiraled. Ecstasy, it... What it's chemically doing is flooding your brain with serotonin and dopamine, which are neurotransmitters responsible for feelings of like joy and feeling great physically, mentally, emotionally. And it's just this like high where everything is good. I mean, nothing bad could ever happen when you're, that's how you feel when you're high on MDMA, ecstasy. So once I experienced that for the first time, I was like, this is how I want to feel every day of constantly. Like, this is the feeling I've been searching for, for as long as I could think. And she didn't stop there. Proceeded to harder drugs from ecstasy, I would say, like the next step I took was going into psychedelics. So I started using a lot of psilocybin mushrooms and LSD tabs now searching for this realization. Like if I trip this time, I'm going to have a sudden spiritual awakening. I was just using drugs, trying to fill a void that couldn't be filled by drugs, but I just kept going. 
Sarah was able to continue this direction without it being detected. And part of that was because it wasn't yet having a negative effect on her studies. I was actually doing very well in school. At the time, I was at Blaine Community College. Um, and I was in, I, my first semester, I took five classes. Next semester, I took four. So I was in a normal, pretty he- like heavy class load. I did schedule all my classes to be in the evening. Since it was community college, you could take a 4.30 class. So I pushed everything back to the afternoons. That way I could stay up and get high or get drunk and wake up and still have time to make it to school. And my compromise with myself was if my grades start slipping, I will stop doing drugs. And I was able to maintain grades, so I just kept on rolling. But as she progressed down this path she realized that these stronger drugs were more expensive. She needed a way to pay for this habit. At the beginning, I hung around a lot of people that were using drugs, so most of it was for free. I didn't have a job at the time. And once I started to advance into more expensive drugs like LSD or mushrooms, the people I was associated with and choosing to hang around were like, well, just sell. Like you can sell some weed and then it will pay for itself. And I thought this was a genius idea, you know, oh, well, if I'm only selling to college students and people that I know, it's it's not going to be bad. I'm not selling to kids. And that was a really sorry excuse that I used to then proceed into selling narcotics. But selling marijuana wasn't enough. Since it's not that expensive, it really doesn't bring in much money. It does not. And I learned that very quickly. There, It just, I wasn't making enough money for it to be feasible for me to continue to buy more expensive drugs. So I quickly began to sell cocaine and LSD and MDMA. So now Sarah has actually become a dealer for serious narcotics. She really didn't think in the beginning it would progress to this, and she knew she had to stop at some point. But the goal she had set for herself, what she wanted to achieve, was not what you might expect. No long-term goal to stop. I mean, it's something that I think that is very juvenile and naive, is at that time I really wanted to be able to buy a moped, like a Honda Ruckus moped that are like, maybe $2,000. So my long-term goal was to be able to buy a moped at some point. Like, no plans of running an enterprise or doing this for the rest of my life. It was very much just living in the moment, living for the next high, and hoping to buy a moped along the way. From this point, she progressed to taking pills. I started to take uh, Xanax pills. I'll Alprazolam, not anything that you would buy at a pharmacy, but pressed Xanax pills. These aren't like pills that if you went to CVS, if you had a prescription, you would buy them and they were made in a pharmacy. These were made somewhere within the country, maybe outside of the country, by people who are actually have a pill press that are pressing these drugs together. This is not a pharmacy-grade material or something that I was prescribed. When I really dove into pills and Xanax, I started because I don't, I didn't like drinking. Well, I liked, I the only reason I like to drink is to get drunk. 
I didn't like to have to go through the whole process of drinking. So whenever I would take a Xanax, I could start to feel like I was drunk. Like, you know, you're just kind of loose and things don't really matter. And I quickly started to take, start out with taking two, then three. And towards the end of my drug using career, which was about two months later, I was taking eight to 10 pressed Xanax bars a day. And the sole reason was to black out. I just wanted to not remember anything. I knew it couldn't end positively. It's, it quickly took over my life and I didn't really know how to get out. I mean, selling drugs isn't like a nine to five job. It's 24 seven because everybody's looking for drugs all the time. And this quickly took over and I was at a point where I didn't even know how to get out even if I wanted to. But this advanced from like being cool and being invited to all the parties because I thought people wanted to be around me to something that I was like, I I can't control this. I don't even know what to do at this point. So just taking tons of Xanax and blacking out was a lot easier than facing anything that I had gotten myself into. During this time, Sarah often had drugs in her car and in her apartment. She often felt kind of stressed about that, which probably anyone would be in that situation. But then she had what she called a premonition. I had been selling at this point for about three months, and I had times where I was like nervous if I was picking up an ounce of cocaine and driving home, feelings that would be like, oh, this is a little bit nervous. But it was three days before I had this atrocious feeling in my stomach, like there is just something wrong. And I was confiding in one of my acquaintances, friends at the time. And he's like, you're just in your head. Like, it's not a big deal. If nobody would ever come arrest you, there are bigger people that sell drugs. They wouldn't come after you. Very ignorant thinking. And just telling me I was paranoid, but I was like, I can't shake this feeling. Something just feels awful. And then there was a knock at the door at Friday on Friday morning at eight o'clock. And it wasn't even that early. I usually think of a drug raid being, you know, they bang on the door at four in the morning to wake you up or something. But this was at eight o'clock in the morning. What happened that day? Yeah, it was November 6, 2015. It was around eight o'clock in the morning and um, it was a Friday, so I didn't have school. I had my Fridays off and I'm laying in my bed and I hear that dreaded, just like in the movies, like that dun, 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 dun on my back door. And so I like kind of woke up out of my sleep and was a little bit confused because I had roommates at the time. And if they didn't have their keys, they would knock. And I was like, oh, it's probably somebody at the house. They just didn't have their keys. So I waited a second and then I heard another dun, 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 dun on my back door. And so I wasn't thinking that I was being arrested. Like that did not come to my mind. I was like, oh, someone's just being annoying. They want me to wake up and come open the door. And so I look out like the we out our back door where like a peephole was and there was a postal person. So I was like, okay, I guess they just want to deliver this package. I open the door, postal person moves out of the way. My house is raided by law enforcement. They were waiting for you to open that door. They were ready and I knew I guess anyone would open up for a, a postal person. 
How many cops were there? I can't say for sure. I would say at least eight to nine. It was a crowd of people ready to come in. Yes. They were absolutely ready for it to be, uh, whether I was going to fight or shoot or run away, they were prepared for all circumstances. Did you have any weapons there? No. You don't seem like a gun person at all. Not a gun person. Not would had nothing. Just a college student standing there in a big t-shirt looking completely shocked. You had to be so scared. I scared, but I guess I didn't really feel the it didn't feel real. It I know a lot of times people say when trauma happens it feels like a movie, but it it did. It felt like I was watching this happen. From someone else's perspective, it was just, I was shocked. And I mean, shouldn't have been, but it, I couldn't believe that it was happening. So they came in and, you know, please search warrant and kind of pushed me into the kitchen. Like just, you walk it in the back door and it was in our kitchen and then immediately to the left was my bedroom. So I am just standing in the kitchen and about four or five officers go into my bedroom, which has all of the narcotics and everything laid out everywhere. I mean, I have some of the the crime scene photos from afterwards, which I tr- do not enjoy looking at because it was just a mess. I mean, there were bongs all over my apartment, scales, cocaine was just sitting out on the bookshelf. Like everything was in plain sight. This was not an operation where I was ready or things were hidden. All my money was in a Ziploc bag and a Walmart lampshade. So they quickly found everything that they were looking for and gave me the documentation for a search warrant. You were like the jackpot for them. It was so easy. I mean, it was a, they did not have to search for anything. It was all right there. Yeah. Cause I mean, you picture in a, in a movie, as soon as a major drug dealer Here's the knock on the door. He grabs everything, runs to the toilet, starts to flush it down the toilet, you know. But with you, it's like, nope, here it is, everything. Yeah, here here it all is. I was not even thinking to get rid of anything. I wouldn't have had time. It was just, it looked like what a drug addict's room would look like. Not someone who is sophisticated in selling narcotics, but more like a, a drug addict. Can you talk about the evidence that was on your phone? Yes. They pulled over 150,000 text messages off my phone. I did not delete anything ever. Ed was not cryptic or smart about like using code of, hey, I'm coming to pick up, insert code word for something. It was just like, hey, do you have three ounces of cocaine? I'm like, yeah, come by. Here's a picture of it. I'm at my house. Here's my address. Like, I basically, like, put myself on a platter and served it to law enforcement. Here I am, and here is everything you could possibly need. They were collecting all the evidence from my room. They took my phone. The warrant included my laptop, and I. there was some really nice officers there that once they saw my phone, I begged for them to please allow me to keep my laptop because all my schoolwork was on there. So they allowed me to keep the laptop, thankfully. Um, they searched the car. We had like a police kind of, I guess, just kind of talking interview where 
They were asking me about everything in my apartment, and I was claiming that I didn't know, and I didn't know anything, and I was scared, and I was crying and confused. So after that, they, I had a, I don't know any of these officers' names. They were all really nice considering the circumstances. Asked me if I was a dangerous criminal, and I said no. So they allowed me to have my handcuffs up front, which was just a nice gesture that I still appreciate to this day, even though the circumstances were really bad. So I was taken down to College Station Jail, and I waited there for about eight hours until I knew what my charges were. I wasn't, at that point, I wasn't able to make a phone call. I was just sitting in a small, it's a very small county. It's a city jail, so it's not even equipped for people to stay. It's like, you're just here for a little bit. And the investigator came and read me out my charges and told me I'd be transferred to the Brazos County Detention Center since they were all felonies. Once I was transferred to Brazos County Detention Center, which was about 5.30 p.m., you are booked into jail. They take you there. You know, they take off your clothes. They do your search, do your fingerprints. You sit in booking for a few hours. And so you're just there in your normal clothes and there's pay phones for you to make a free call. And there's like a list for bail bonds. I didn't know what any of that was. At this point, I still thought that I could call my friend at the time and that he was going to be able to bail me out and my parents were never going to know. I thought that we were just going to be able to pay this money, I would get out, and we would keep this a secret. Very ignorant. Doesn't it strike you now, looking back, at how could I have been so naive? Every day of my life, still, I'm like, naive, stupid, ignorant. Like, what were you thinking that I had just... I never prepared for the worst outcome or even looked into what that would be. I knew what I was doing was illegal, but I came up with all tons of excuses for, oh, I wouldn't get caught and I'm not selling that much, a bunch of lame excuses. So I never went through like the, this, this is a consequence of what would happen. So the fact I thought that my parents wouldn't find out or the whole world by that, it just, feels very stupid. I decided to call my mom, let it ring three times, hung up, called my dad, let it ring once, hung up. I did not want to talk to them. I was completely ashamed and embarrassed. And how would I explain to them that I was in jail with for four felony counts of manufacturing and delivering narcotics? Like, I didn't want to tell them. So I called my friend back at the time and I was like, hey, I can't get in touch with them. So I'm going to need you to tell them. And this friend is no longer in my life and he had never talked to my parents. So I gave him my mom's number to call her and just let her know that I was in jail. So she got a phone call from a stranger. Yeah. Saying, yeah, your daughter's been arrested. And at that point, it was probably like 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night because I was too much of a coward to do it myself. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. 
That little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com/what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com/what. She was about an hour away, and my dad was living in South America at the time, and we didn't have much communication at all for these past few years. And they were actually in town because my dad was getting ready to move back from South America to Houston. So my mom was able to get in touch with my dad, and they were able to coordinate and then drive up to the jail to see me. And you didn't even know they were coming to the jail, right? I did not. We happened to be in Texas at that very time looking for a new home. Sarah's father, Bill. Uh, that morning, I remember very distinctly, we were just getting ready to fly back to Panama after we found the house that we were going to buy in Cyprus. And my wife and I were packing our bags and we had our three boys with us as well, her younger brothers. As I came out of the shower, 
my wife came to me and said that I had a missed phone call from Sarah's mother, Sean. So I checked the voicemail and it said that uh, she needed to see if, if I could help out because she had gotten a message from one of Sarah's friends that Sarah had been arrested. I was puzzled and shocked, obviously, when I first heard this. So I immediately, my thought was maybe it was a minor in possession of alcohol because I know the school for Texas A&M, they're very stringent about that, very strict, and they would uh, write tickets or arrest people. So I called her back and she said that it had something to do with drugs. And then again, my thought was, is well, she must have been around somebody that was in possession of marijuana. I immediately had no instinct to think that she had really gotten herself into some serious trouble. I uh, made some phone calls over to the uh, college station area through some police contacts that I had. And as I talked to one of the detectives who actually was in charge of the case, you know, he was shocked to find out that Sarah's father was a DEA agent and he laid it all out to me. I just remember feeling almost numb. I couldn't believe what was being said to me. Uh, it was almost like I was outside my body watching a person receive this news. It was uh, stunning to say the least. I'll never forget that feeling of, uh, walking in to the, the main area where they have the glass and you, you can speak to inmates on the other side of the glass. Her mother got there at about the same time that I did. Standing there and Sarah came walking out from behind the door and was in an orange jumpsuit with makeup that had run down her face from crying. And, uh, she was in very fragile emotional state uh, as all of us were. I get booked into jail after our phone calls, go to try to go to sleep. And the next day they came in and let me know that I had a visitor. And I assumed it was my friend coming to tell me everything was taken care of and I was going home. And this will forever be the worst moment of my whole life was when I walked into that room in my orange jumpsuit to have a visit through a pane of glass. And I sat down and I waited for the door to open and it was my parents. And I still remember what they were wearing to this day. And that was almost seven years ago. I will never forget that. And it will likely forever be the worst day of my entire life. And you had not seen your dad recently anyway. No, it had been some years since we had seen each other. So it was, it was really shame isn't a big enough word to summarize how I felt. Just, I wish there was a bigger word than shame. Maybe there is, and I just don't know it yet, but I haven't found a word to encapsulate that feeling. They had to be so confused. Confused, shocked. I, it, I blindsided my whole family by never asking for help or giving them any inclination of what I had going on. So my dad told me not to panic and that things were going to be okay and that I was able to post bail to get me out. How much was your bail? 
So my bail was, wait, no, my bond, my bond was 35000 So the bail is 10%, so 3500 They said they would get you out, right? Yes. They're going to they're gonna post the bond. Mm-hmm. And did you just get out right then, or how long was it? It took about five hours. So they were like, don't worry, you know, we're working in the process to be able to get you out. Everything's going to be okay. The visit was relatively short because I could, it was traumatizing both of them as well as myself, but mostly them. And I just, I didn't want them to continue to have to talk to me through a phone, through a pane of glass. So you didn't really have a chance at that point to explain to them what happened, how you got into this spot or anything. No, my dad turned law enforcement mode. Like he, he was prepared and he was like, look, we're going to get you out. This is what's going on. We're paying the bail. Things that this will, we'll take care of this soon. Like we're going to see you soon. My mom was obviously just hysterical and she kept putting her hands on the glass and just asking me why and was crying. And I, she was wearing a Vineyard Vines pink raincoat. Like I can still see it clear as day. And I, at that point, I didn't even have answers, which hurt. So I went back to our eight person tank and I waited a few hours. Then they came and called me and told me I was leaving. Process is pretty easy. They give you the clothes you came in with, sign paperwork. They transport you to the bail bonds office. And that's where I actually got to like physically see my parents for the first time, I guess, not through a pane of glass. So you get out and you get in the car with your parents. What's that conversation like? One of the most challenging, but a moment that will forever be a pivotal point when my life changed completely. And it was something that my dad said to me that, I can't forget, and I think it's important not to, and his exact words were, you made a monumental fuck up, but your life is not over. Not over. He's like, but the next part is going to be even harder because now I need you to be 100% honest with us about everything. That's the only way it will get better. And I was not wanting to share all of those details with my parents, but it's what was necessary. And your dad had some special insight with this because of his work with the DEA, right? He kind of knew how this all worked. I think like it was not, he knows it from like an arresting officer's perspective, but not like anything that happens after, you know, like they do. And they he was working on much larger, like, investigation so he's like i knew that people went to jail but after that that wasn't my business in my mind those people put themselves in jail and sucks for you and once it became his family i know it provided a different insight but he knew how the next proceedings were going to work and he's like and it will only work if you are 100 percent honest this gave him a little bit different perspective definitely but i love the fact that, I mean, his reaction to this is incredible. It's, this is my daughter. I have to do something. Uh, he wanted to help you rather than, okay, you screwed up. You did this to yourself. That's what I would have expected and understood was for 
them to be like, look, we're not getting you out of jail. You put yourself in this situation, especially with my dad. I mean, I was so horrible to this person for years behind petty family stuff and being a teenager and being a jerk. And I was not kind to my dad and it was not anything of my dad's doing. And my dad always tried to reach out and make things better and try to mend things. But I was unwilling because I was a kid and selfish. So for, I mean, both my parents to be there, but, you know, my dad to stand by me and those words of this is a monumental fuck up, but it's not over continue to resonate in my life. Even when I do make mistakes, him standing beside me through all this will mean more than I think anything that anyone could ever do. So you went back home and that's when you saw the booking photo. Yes. And how is, tell me about this. This is a booking photo, not a mugshot. What's the difference? So your mugshot is when you first come into any sort of, I guess, jail. So when I got to College Station Jail, it was like how you see on the movies where you're going to stand to the side, they're going to take a side picture of you, and you're going to stand to the front and take a front picture. So that had all happened at the first place I was at. So once I was transferred and went through booking again, they do your fingerprints, ask you questions. They said I was taking a booking photo. And they explained that this was for an ID that you carry around the jail, which is true. It's like a little printed out piece of paper to prove that this is you and your spin number. So when I took that photo, I thought of it as an ID photo and I smiled. And it was just something, I guess, that was natural to do in a picture. And I'm scared out of my mind and confused at this point. But that is the photo that was attached to every article ever and put that I was smiling because I thought that it was funny and that my dad would get me off on everything, which could not be further from the truth, but it's how it looked. Right. It looked like you weren't taking it seriously. Absolutely. We'll have that picture uh, on the website, you know, in the show notes. But yeah, it looks like when the press got this photo and obviously mugshots are public booking photos are public it's all public information Mm -hmm. they must have people that go through these things and just find some stories that are unusual and look for these photos but when they saw your picture and you were you know a young 19 year old girl smiling for the camera like a like an instagram influencer or something Mm. and yet with the article that went with it was all of these huge variety of drugs that were found in your apartment and you got the nickname, the adorable drug kingpin. Do you remember the first time you read that, what you thought? I do. It was a KBTX article, which is a college station one was the first one that came out. And that was before I got that atrocious nickname, but it was college student arrested in apartment for selling methamphetamine, which was not the case technicality thing, but I just, the first time I saw it, I remember going downstairs and waking up my mom because I was so upset that it said methamphetamine, like that mattered. And I was like, but that's, that's not the case. And I wasn't, it's not like that. And she's made it, me understand and how it progressed from there was they can say whatever they want. 
And it just spiraled from there to Houston Chronicle to being picked up by Death and Taxes, which is, I think, who gave me the nickname. And it just then took on a life of its own. It literally went viral everywhere. Went viral. And I've read every article, every comment, every Facebook share. I read all of it. And that's probably the worst thing you could do for your own mental health, right? The absolute worst thing. And my dad kept telling me, just don't look. And I get it. Objectively, just don't look at it. But I mean, when I try to put it in perspective, I was like, imagine if you are at work and there was a group of coworkers that were gossiping about you. Most of us would want to know, like, well, what, what were they saying? And I just couldn't stop looking and the comments understandably were not kind and i just absorbed all of them which led me to a very very dark place you you were already feeling down and vulnerable and not knowing what's going to happen in my life right now and now it seems like everyone hates you what were some of the messages you even got emails right yes i it's When your worst mistake is broadcast to the entire world to give their opinions on, understandably, I wasn't expecting anyone to be rooting for me, but the emails ranged from, you know, I hope you overdose in your own vomit, fucking kill yourself, to strange people offering to marry me, which was weird, but most of it, you know, go fuck yourself, hang yourself, do everybody a favor, she needs prison for the rest of her life fire her dad, make sure her mom loses her job. And when it strayed into my family and not my mistake, but somehow my parents' responsibility was when I was the first time I was ready to end my life behind it. Because it genuinely thought that it they would leave my family alone if I just killed myself and took the easier way out of the situation. Did you voice that the suicidal ideas to your parents? Not immediately. It took a while before I mentioned it. It was in those five years of waiting when I told my stepmom, I was like, I'm, I can't do it. I can't handle this. Cause like it would, it went viral, but it would continue to come up. Like anytime I had a status hearing or anything, it would come back up with the news again. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I think it's just better if I kill myself. And she was like, you can't, that's not an option. She's like, you have to think about everyone else and how that would affect them. And truly at that time, I thought it would be better if I just wasn't here. It would stop the people from accusing my dad of things and coming after my mom and my siblings being questioned about this at school if I just wasn't here. But my stepmom made it very clear, like, that's not an option and you would destroy our lives forever. So you, you can't. So you were out on bond and you didn't really know how you were, how long you were going to be out. Correct. How did this affect your school? You were, cause you were still in school. Yes, I was in school. I was arrested in November. So I got out and I continued class, tried to. And I was, I had to have a disciplinary meeting because I was arrested. Even though it wasn't on school grounds, it was, I guess, policy not to be arrested. So I had a discussion with the disciplinary board and they told me that I was fine to proceed and continue to go to school. 
So it's December. I'm taking finals. I'm registered for the next semester to continue at Blinn. And one day I'm going and I'm switching around some classes and I got a notification that I had a hold on my account, which typically happens if like your tuition didn't process or you have an unpaid textbook. And I went and checked it and it said I had been expelled until 2025. And at that point it was 2015. So I called the disciplinary board, I, the lady I had met with, and I was like, hey, this says I'm expelled. And she's like, yeah, well, they had a secondary meeting and they decide you cannot come back. So you can finish out the next like eight days I had left of school and then you cannot return. And they had already told you you could continue school unless you got convicted. Yes, and continue school. So I was ready for the spring semester. And I, at that point, I was commuting back and forth because I was evicted from my apartment and I was ready to start spring so I could continue college to get ready to transfer, try to transfer into A&M, but it was, it was cut short. You said you got evicted from your apartment. Obviously, there yes. must be a rule in the apartment about no drug dealers. Yeah, don't commit felony crimes. You cannot right. live here. That's You can't argue with that policy, really. No, not at all. I I get it. So your current status at this point is you're living with your mom. Mm -hmm. You're in therapy, I understand. Yes. You're back on your regular medication mm -hmm. and you're staying sober. Did you feel like things had, I mean, obviously it was still up in the air about what was going to happen with the charges, but did you feel like you had turned the corner and, and started on the right track now? It felt like I was on the way obviously to something better. I wasn't quite sure what that was. Being clean from drugs was very challenging at first, but I understood it's just, it's not an option to go back. I, I can't, and I did not want to go to jail or back to jail on anything new and bring more stuff on my family. So I started to feel, I guess, better. It's still kind of a confusing time. I'm learning to navigate dealing with the issues that I ignored for over a year with doing drugs. And that's a important lesson I learned is getting high and escaping doesn't fix those problems. So when you get sober, it's time to deal with all of them. So I was dealing with a lot of self-esteem issues, trauma from what I had caused for myself and my family. But I did start to feel like I was in the right direction. It was time for to look for something else. So I had that semester off that spring, so I applied to Texas State, Sam Houston, and A&M because my goal was to be an Aggie and follow in my older brother's footsteps. I really wanted to be an Aggie. So I sent the application, turned it over to my higher power, and was like, look, if, if that door is not for me, close it, and I'll know, and I'll move on to a new goal. And it was February 17th, and it came in the mail that I was accepted, and I got in uh, to A&M. So I was very excited to tell my parents. At first, you know, they're happy, like, oh, my gosh, you got in. And then we were quickly like, well, is it, why would we send you back? Why would we, why would you go back to the exact spot where you were and were involved in drugs and derailed your life. Do you really think that that's a good idea? So they took some time to think about it. 
understandably, while I just pleaded with them to please let me go back. When they were saying go back, this was not just going back to the college environment. You were going back to the same city pretty much, right? Same city. Did that worry you at all like it worried them? Uh, I don't. I understood why I was just riding on this, like, I cannot believe I, I got in. It was really, I still question who reviewed the application and didn't recognize the name, and to that person, I'll forever be grateful. I couldn't believe I got in, and I just wanted, it was something I wanted so badly, and I couldn't believe I'd gotten there. So after some weeks of annoying my parents and begging them to allow me to go back, with, I was like, you know, I'll put the tracking, the find my friends are, uh, there's another app, not just like find my friends. It's more intense where they can like track your location throughout the whole day. I was like, I'll live on campus. I really, I really want to do this. And my dad made it clear. He's like, if we give you this opportunity, if there is a single mess up and, and a minor in possession, you're drunk and disorderly, you're coming home and that's it. You can pay for community college. We're not doing this again. And I, understandably, I mean, they already paid for me to try to go the first time and I messed it up. So they put a lot of faith in me and that is the, my driving force to go there and do what I needed to do. You had a lot of incentive to, to be successful this time. Yes. And not to allow anything to take me off course. The thing that's kind of unusual about this is you were, from the time you were arrested and got out on bond, it was quite a long time, even enough time for you to go to college and graduate. Correct. That isn't That's very unusual, isn't it? It is. I had, it was five years total with um, the insurmountable amount of evidence I left behind, the 120,000 plus text messages that aided in my case taking longer to get up the docket and having an attorney whose goal was he's like we just need to keep pushing it back like the more time you allow the better which in in my mind I just wanted it over with I was like no I just want to get this over with and it's like this looming cloud and a million bricks on my shoulders I just want to know what the outcome is going to be and he's like the best thing to do is wait we're not going to push the issue until they bring it up and and you weren't going to tr to a trial, you because you had already confessed to everything. This was just a sentencing hearing, correct? So you were waiting, and they were pushing this back and back and back, and that was really even though you wanted it to be over with, that was really to your advantage, right? Because you got to show all the people that are going to be at the sentencing hearing how well you're doing now. You had five years to show them that. Yes, it it worked in my advantage and being objective I can see why it was the better option the, the more distance I'm able to put between myself the more accomplishments I'm able to show like hey it's been five years I graduated from Texas A&M I immediately got a full-time job I've been promoted at my full-time job I'm on the right track and I've been sober so it was a lot of time to prove myself that I had changed what kind of work were you looking to do? I majored with a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. I was hoping to eventually be have a, an LPC for a licensed professional counselor 
And during that time, I knew what my charges were, but I remained hopeful that I would end up pleading down to something smaller and not taking a felony charge. Because in the state of Texas, with a felony, you cannot hold any sort of state license. Or I wanted to work in a rehab, something that allowed me to help people and try to prevent teenagers from ending up and putting themselves in a situation that I did. So that was the career path. But having a criminal background makes it incredibly difficult to get a job. So I took the first job I was offered out of college, which was being a receptionist at the company I currently work for now. And it did. I had a little bit of an ego thinking like, oh, well, I have a degree. Tons of places will want to hire me. I, I have from a great college, but a criminal background will outweigh a college degree every time, which it's fair. If I owned a company, I don't think I would be like, give me everyone who's a felon. That's who I want to interview. But it made it very challenging, but I'm very blessed that this company took a chance on me and allowed me just to start by answering the phones. And I've been promoted now four different times since I've been employed there. And I was able to start making more money and have more responsibilities and start an adult career. It's not in the degree field I wanted to be in or the career field, but it I knew how important it was to have a job. Yeah, that's a big factor when they consider when you go to your sentencing. Absolutely. And you don't get to be picky when you have a background. You just take what you can get and be grateful for that. You must have had to take, I mean, if you go in for different things, you must have had to take some time off work. And But they were okay with all that? Yes. That company was very understanding of my circumstances and which I'm very grateful for. So when I would have a court appearance, I'd understand I'd have to take the half day to drive up to College Station and sign paperwork that I'm waiting or I didn't right away. When COVID hit, that pushed my court almost back a year. So that allowed me to have a little more time of not having to go in person, but they were very understanding of my legal situation. So the day of your sentencing comes, and this is December of 2020. Yes. What did you expect your sentence to be? Or what was the maximum you could have gotten? I know the maximum with first degree felonies, you can be sentenced up to 25 years. Like that's the statute for the felony itself. There was a lot of feelings on all sides of how it would go. My attorney was hopeful it would be probation. I've was not hope that hopeful. I didn't think that it it could go that way. I didn't think it was going to be prison. I I assume maybe six months in county jail or doing weekends where you know like you work, you go check yourself in on Friday, you stay till Sunday, you leave, and I could just do a year or two of weekends. I was hopeful that I would not go to prison. You were hopeful for that, but. I understand when you went to the hearing, you were prepared for the worst. How did you prepare for that? I had all of like, I mean, I had a I one credit card at JC or not JCPenney at a Marshall's card. So my finances were taken care of. I had my phone shut off. I drove my car up to the court hearing along with my parents. And since it was Christmas time, I had 
everybody's Christmas presents wrapped and separated in the back of my car, my car title, all financial documents so that if things went the wrong way, my family had their Christmas gifts, my car, all that stuff was as taken care of as it could be. Because if you knew if you, whatever you were sentenced to, if you had to go to prison, you would be remanded into custody that day or at that hearing. Immediately. What was your sentence? I was sentenced to eight years in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice to run concurrent, which is where they all run at the same time. So I had three counts of eight years and then a two-year state jail felony. And it was all to run at the same time, so together, but still it was it was eight years in prison. What did you think when you heard eight years? That moment was, I've had to go back to look at the court transcript so that I could, because I'm sick, weird, like who would want to read that again? Me. But I wanted to remember it the best I could because at that moment, I thought things had went okay in the sentencing hearing because like first the prosecution goes and presented their mountain of evidence and I was like oh my god I just want to run away when we were on lunch break I was like just let me run like I'll run and just get it as far away as I can and they catch me my dad's like no this you know it, it was their turn they make things obviously look as bad as it can be it's our turn afterwards. Like, so I had one of my bosses testified, my therapist testified, my dad testified, and I ended up testifying. I took the stand and thought that that would help somehow, but I thought things went okay. In my mind, I thought that me taking accountability for my choices and being able to show what I had done would be enough for them to allow me to do a state jail or a not state jail, county jail time, something that would allow me to maintain the life I had built for myself. So when he, I remember what the judge said, he said, um, prison is for three things, to reform, to deter from future action, and for punishment. He said, for reform, you've shown yourself to be reformed. It's been five years. I haven't committed another crime. You have a job to deter from future action. Obviously, you haven't made the choice again. I think it's, you know, made a pretty big impact on what making this choice again would do. So I was feeling hopeful. And then he said, but for punishment, what you did was wrong. And you got up here and you admitted that you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. So I'm sentencing you to eight years and the Texas Department of Criminal Justice to be remanded now. So my parents were in there. That was another horrible moment. My mom was crying. And begging them not to take me away. My dad and stepmom were there too. And my therapist and his mom. And they were just like, hey, it's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. And at that point, it just felt like circus music going on in my head of like, what is happening? I mean, I was expect, I was prepared to do county jail. I had no idea what prison was going to be like. Yeah, that's a whole other story. Yeah, it was not an experience that. TV or movies can prepare you for. It's absolutely one of a kind. So you were taken into custody. Taken into custody at the courthouse. They were nice enough to let me hug my parents one more time and take off my Aggie ring and my earrings to 
give them so I didn't have to bring that into the jail to go into property because things can get lost. Went back and went through the booking process again, fingerprints. When I took my booking photo, I did absolutely not smile this time. Kept it. You learned that lesson. Sad, yeah. Stayed stayed sad, just authentic emotion, sadness. Since this was COVID, I had to spend the first two weeks in solitary, which is by yourself in the cell for about the size of this closet for 23 hours a day and you come out for one to use the phones. That was my first mental challenge. Definitely difficult to be in such a small space with your own thoughts in jail. What do you do all that time? Did you have books or anything or what could you do? I did have books. My family sent in some books and we were able to pass books from one cell to the other by sliding it out and attaching it to something heavier like a tray. So people would pass books to each other and I was reading whatever it was I could read. I didn't care the genre. I was not picky. So after two weeks, I moved into uh, general population, which was my first time being in general population, a lot more people, a lot more space, and just kind of adjusting to jail. So you're in county jail until the TDCJ, Texas Department of Criminal Justice, picks up. You're assigned a number that night. They will let you know at 2 o'clock in the morning, pack your stuff up. You're pulling chain and you're going to prison. So I didn't pull chain. I was in county jail for almost, I think, 35 to 40 days before I pulled chain and went to prison. And I met some nice people that were in there that kind of prepared me. I was looking for all the advice I could get. I had only seen Orange is the New Black, so I was like, I don't want people to beat me up or steal my stuff. Like, how do I avoid getting in fights like you see on the TV? How do I don't want to be forced into a gang. All these preconceived notions that I quickly learned. They're like, it's it's not like that. You mentioned Orange is the New Black, and this is what it seems like, though. You know, the, the naive, non-street smart girl heading to the big tough prison that was you shouldn't have watched that show i watched it again once i got out to like see how accurate it was i was like no not like that it i don't even know how to explain it it's very overwhelming getting there first unit you go to i don't know if all i would assume other states are like this but in texas all women are processed through the exact unit it's one unit it's the diagnostic unit where you're going to go you take your iq test they're going to check your mental your physical health that way they can assign what jobs you're going to have and the next unit that you'll go to so i was at the processing unit for almost three months and that was a mind fuck of its own just adjusting to prison i i'm still struggling of like how you put something into words because everything is stripped of you like you're not called a name my number was two three three four one seven three that's what they're going to call you or your bunk number which i had a lot of different bunks so it's dehumanizing and you're on their schedule. You wear their clothes, the prison clothes that are assigned to you. You work at the job they tell you to. When you get up, you get up. When you go to bed at 10 o'clock, 10 o'clock is lights out. The free time is in a room with 60 other people. 
Chow is at lunch. Breakfast is at four o'clock in the morning. Lunch is at ten thirty. Dinner is around five. You don't have any control over your day. You do what you're told. You don't ask questions and keep your head down and do what you're told. Which I didn't mind listening to doing what I was told, but this was a. It's on a whole other level. Yeah, it was intense to find a a way to make it work and not be miserable. I mean, my like go-to in the free world was typically that I would just kill myself. Now I could be able to kill yourself in there. The only way is if like you starved yourself and no one's going to do that. So I had to accept that there was no way out and the only way out was through. And if that meant eight years, that meant eight years, which was dreadful to think about. And I was lucky enough to bunk with a lot of really kind women that gave me great advice on how to do time and not lose yourself or lose your sanity. That's one thing that I would wonder about. The people that you came into contact with there, this is prison. So a lot of them are in for a long time and they've done really bad things. Did you meet other women who you were scared of? that they were going to attack you or did you kind of congregate to the ones who were, who wanted to help you? You, uh, some advice I got, which remained true was people had told me in County jail, they're like, you'll find your people. You'll find people that are like you sit on your bunk, read your book. Don't get a girlfriend, which is the reason why there are fights. Like almost every fight I saw was behind girlfriends and someone that you're dating or that someone passed a note to somebody. So I just stayed on my bed and stayed quiet. And I did end up meeting like-minded people that we would start talking about a book. And it's big to have pictures. So like if you're fortunate enough that your family sends you pictures, we would share pictures. And women really do come together, even in a place like that where not everybody was nice. And some people were a little bit rough around the edges. But There was a sense of community in the strangest way of like if someone came and they didn't have money on their books, like they weren't making store, people would all all come together and chip in to get them noodles, to get everyone something because you didn't want to see people go without because prison is not the place that you want to not have anything for yourself. So there was moments of humanity that I saw even in a inhumane place that gave me hope and it was a standard like rule that you don't ask why people are there it's just not your business which was a really important rule that I learned going into prison was mind my own business something I still sometimes struggle with is being a little bit nosy so I learned to just do not worry about what anybody else has going on unless they want to talk to you about it so I did bunk with people one of them that had done some pretty horrific crimes, but I learned it's not my place to judge and it's not my business. I just base it how people treat me in here. And if you treat me kindly and I'm nice to you, just keep it at that level. So your next hope was to get out on parole. When did that come up or how long were you in or how much time did you have to do before you were eligible? I had to do 14 months And the way parole works is you 
like depending on your time. So my crime was not aggravated. So after for an eight year sentence, I was eligible to see the parole board after 10 months. So I prepared for that by staying out of trouble, not breaking any of the rules, not having any cases. I was able to be promoted to a trustee status, which looked good for parole, but I was trusted to, I worked outside of the yard. I did um, outside yard, so like mowing and weed eating all around the prison. And your family can write in and write letters and your work people can write in to speak to your behalf that you have support when you get out. And you can be seen six months before and you don't know when you're seen because you actually never see a parole board. You don't see anybody. You'll have an interview with like um, an officer that will ask you questions like, how do you feel about crime? Are you sorry for your crime? What do you plan to do if you get out? And they'll pass that info along. But really, it will be three different three people at an office that you will never meet that will decide if you go home that year or if you have to wait another 365 days for an option to go home. That's got to be such a common misconception because I'm picturing, you know, you sitting in a folding chair facing three people at a long table and you're just pleading your case like, you know, I'm, I'm all better now. But you don't even see these people. You never see them. You can write letters, which I wrote a letter. If they see it, I have no idea, but it's, you have to relinquish control over what happens. And that was one of the biggest lessons I learned in prison was learning to, I couldn't control it. All I can do was what I was responsible for so I can stay out of trouble and go to my job and do exactly what I need to do. And that was the only thing I could put in for what parole board would see. Otherwise, you're, you're really just a file that comes across their desk. One person votes and typically how the first person votes, everyone else votes on and on to the next one. You must have deliberately tried to not get your hopes up. Did you have, do you think you had any chance? Well, for my first six months, I did a lot of asking other people. I asked everybody that I met, do you think I'm going to make parole? Do you think I'm going to make parole? And majority of people were like, no, you have an eight year sentence. There's no way you'll make your first parole. And so I was like, this, it's hopeless. I'm not going to go home. It's very challenging there not to think about like, even though you're in prison and this is your life, like the world keeps turning. Your family keeps waking up and getting older and having birthdays and having Christmases and you're just, you're missing it. And I was very neurotic at the beginning behind everything I was missing, like everything, every birthday, every Easter, like anytime a holiday came, I was like, I'll never get this back. I'll never be with my family at this point in time to see them where they were at. And some of my siblings were reaching pretty big milestones. Like my only sister had her 16th birthday and it crushed me that I was not there to see it. But I got very wise advice from someone that was like, you have to stop thinking about them. Your world is in these four walls. That's all you have. Your world is getting up, going to your job, and going to chow. You can love your family, but you can't control it. And the more involved you try to be, it will make you crazy. And it it does. Like, just focused on, I can't get to them. Like, what if something, what if they get in an accident? When will I ever find out? And I mean, that stuff will drive you to a not safe space. So I didn't want to get my hopes up, but at the same time, I was just desperate that the answer was yes. Like, I could not lose hope. 
that it could be yes. It seems like you, when you write the letter to them, you have to strike some kind of a balance. Like you want to tell them the whole truth, but you mm -hmm. also want to kind of think, okay, what do they want to hear? Do I need to write that in the letter? Did, were you thinking about that? Yeah, it was hard not to. I was like, I don't want to come across as I don't deserve to be here because whether I think it's true or not, I'm here because I committed a crime and it's wrong. But I'm also like, well, but what does everybody write? Everyone's going to write that they don't deserve to be there. Like, what is the right thing for these people that I will never meet? So my letter, I kept it just pretty basic and took ownership of my choices and everything I had learned just in those 10 months of being in prison and hope that it would be enough. I had seen it take months for people to have an answer and seen it take less than a week. And so whenever I had my parole board hearing, uh, my family was notified because your family is able to Zoom and give only one family member. And it's like, I think it's cut down to like 10 minutes. It's quick, which I understand there's hundreds of thousands of inmates. Like they don't have time to hear everybody's story. So my dad let me know. He's like, hey, I think it went well. Wait a minute, your, your dad, he could Zoom with, who was in this Zoom meeting? It's one parole person that will vote. So my mom was able to be there and my boss was able to basically like stand in as to show like, hey, this person has support when they get out, they can come live with me. They're going to have a job. And these are things that are important because they want to know they're not giving you a bus ticket to be like, good luck. They want to know you have support. So my dad said he thought it went well, which I was like, well, did they say anything? He's like, no, they just listened. I'm like, dad, I needed you to find out somehow like what they were going to say. <laughs> and he's like, she seemed nice. I was like, okay. And I knew her name. He, they told me, so I prayed for her and just turned it over as best that I could. It really seems like it's almost better that those people could be on the Zoom with this one parole person. Instead of you trying to plead your case. Yeah, I understand. I wish, I wish I'd give you at least the option. Cause like, what if I didn't have family? Then no one gets, and there are plenty of people who did not have a support system. And I'm like, so then no one gets to go and you're just a, a manila folder that they look at for two seconds and they're like, next. It's not fair. And it made me feel guilty at times for having support when I would see people who didn't. And it made me very grateful for my family, but it also just sucks knowing that sometimes people don't have people and that's an incredibly lonely place to be and not feel supported or seen or remembered or that you're not just lost in a cage somewhere and no one's thinking about you. How did you find out the result? I called my friend. So I have a very close friend who's cat sitting for me right now. And um, I called him first. So I used to call every day and try to find out if something was going on. And I know I drove him nuts because every time the answer was no, that there wasn't anything new, my demeanor would change completely and I was devastated. How would this friend know before you knew? It's posted online. Oh. And. Finding out online, 
you'll find out about a month sooner than it would get to you in jail that you made parole. So you didn't have access to check it online? No, nothing. Just calling. So that was a probably a pretty regular phone call for you? Yes. And I was like, is there anything? Is there anything online? Is there anything new? And I knew like, I knew it hurt as badly for my family as it hurt for me. Because it's hard not to be envious while you're there. Because like, I learned that even though I'm the one in prison, everybody is doing time. We're all doing time together because my family wants to help me and they can't. And I want to be with my family and I, I can't get there. So I had to learn to not be as selfish and be like, well, I'm the one who's in prison. You guys don't understand. And I learned like they do understand because they as badly as they want to give me this news. It's just not here yet. I had to be patient. One day when I got up and I was feeling really crappy, I didn't have work. So I slept until like noon and I didn't get out of my bed and I called and I was just like in a funky mood knowing that the answer was going to be no. I could just hear the difference in his voice. He said, are you ready to come home? I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, you made parole. And so what everybody had told me in prison was like, don't let people know you made it. Don't let anybody know you made it. People will try to take that from you. Because if people know you're going home, they could get in a fight with you or place contraband in your space. Don't let people know. So I tried to remain calm and I was like, okay, I got to call. I called my dad. I called my dad and he's like, I can't wait to see you. You're coming home. And I'm like, okay, but when? Because you get uh, an answer, which is an immediate release, a delayed release, or you can be released to a program. So I had an FI2, which was a delayed release, but I didn't know when it was going to be. So that was the next hurdle was I found out I made parole, but finding out when I'd be going home. And it took, I found out on October 1st that I made parole, but I did not leave until January 7th. Oh, that's a long time. Yes. And you kept it a secret from the other people that whole time? As long as I could, because as what people said about, I guess, like, depending on the facility you were at, at this, my last facility was a smaller group of people. So there was only 18 of us in a room. And when you spend almost 24 hours a day with 18 people, and I had been there for seven months, you get to know each other. Like, even if you don't like each other, and sometimes people didn't like each other, but you live in the same space. There's one phone, there's two showers, and there's four toilets. So you learn to get along. And my acquaintances in prison picked up on it pretty quickly that I had made it. So I pulled them into the bathroom to try to have a private space to tell them that I had made parole. They were really excited. So they start screaming and crying and then everybody found out. But I was really lucky to be in a space where everybody was excited for each other when we found out someone was going home. So I was glad I didn't have to hold on to that for all that time. So I don't think I could. I was very excited. But also wanted to be humble as not everybody makes parole. So the last thing I wanted to do was be putting that in someone's face that I was leaving and they weren't. Can you talk about the day that you left prison? Did your parents come and pick you up? Um, I had my friend get me because only one person is allowed to come. So like your whole family can't be there as a reunion, none of that. So I didn't want to have to pick between my dad and my mom. So my friend came and picked me up and 
So once I found out, I found out on, let's see, I got out on the 7th. I found out on the 2nd of January. So it was just a few days. So like, hey, you're going home in five days, four days. And so I was like, oh my God, like this doesn't feel real. So for the next four days, my friends and I, we drank a lot of coffee to stay awake and like tell stories and be silly. And one of my friends got up early and she braided my hair for me and did my makeup so that I would feel nice when I was leaving. I had all my belongings packed up, but it just didn't feel real. Like I couldn't believe I was actually leaving until I'd stepped out of those gates as a free person. So they came and got me around 10 o'clock and they're like, bunk 4A, ATW, which means all the way, like you're going all the way out of the gates. So I packed up my stuff, walked out. They take you to the front. They look through things again, I guess, make sure you're not taking any. I don't know what you would take out of prison that they might want, but they check to make sure. If if there's anything illegal, they probably want you to take it out, right? I I would think so. I'm I'm not sure what they're looking for, but that's fine. Look through my things. Uh, My friend was able to come in and give me clothes. So I was that's when it felt real. So I got to go into the bathroom, not accompanied by an officer for the first time in 14 months and change by myself in privacy and not get strip searched. Like, And to put on like real underwear and a bra, life changing. I was like, oh my gosh, like real clothes that aren't made of like thick canvas, like just real institutional clothing. Yeah. Yes, it's not great quality. They don't put a lot of, I guess, funding towards like women's clothing when you're in prison. I get it, but still. And I walked out the gates, out the front door, and they said, don't come back. And I left, got in the car. <laughs> My first place I went to eat was McDonald's. I I told myself, like most people are like, oh, I want to go get steak. Like, and that's what I thought for a long time. But as soon as I got in the car, I was like, go to the nearest fast food place, please. I don't care what it is. I just want to eat garbage food in the real world. And I was about 1030 in the morning and I ate chicken nuggets and fries and a milk. So you had real garbage food rather than prison garbage food. Oh, and the prison food. And I'm an extremely picky eater. Like I eat like a 12 year old still i'm trying to branch out now but prison food is not it's terrible so i didn't care what it was i was like just something that is that isn't like mystery meat or something questionable if it's even edible and it was mcdonald's so you're out on parole now but there are conditions it's not like you're just a free person forever What, what are some of the conditions of your parole So when you're granted parole, you're essentially doing the rest of your time in the free world. So like I will be on parole until December of 2028. So you come out and you go report to your parole officer. And depending on what your crime is, like if it was violent or if you had certain crimes of certain classes, like if you had a aggravated charge, you might be required to take a anger management class. So I had to report to my parole officer, and since I had a drug-related offense, I was required to take a UA every week for the first two months and then go from there. So each week I'd go in and do a UA test. I had... Urine analysis? Correct. Okay. So just a drug test, make sure that you're clean. I can't go anywhere where the main source of revenue is alcohol. There are a lot of 
situations that you could no longer, I guess, put yourself in or that I won't risk putting myself in. And you had to come out to a job, right? Or you had to get a job. Yes. I was fortunate to come back to the company I had previously worked for before becoming incarcerated. So they had a job for me. So I was able to start full-time employment right away. And when you're on, when you are released onto parole, you obviously can't release to your own house because you don't have one. So you have to parole to somebody's house. So I paroled to a friend's house while I got situated to get my own apartment. And that took about nine months. Once I had money and I started to look for an apartment, that was another challenge was a lot of places don't want you to live there having a background, which was a little bit discouraging at first because I would get really excited just to be told no. And once I found the place I lived at now, it was I was able to explain to the property manager. I just asked if I could have a conversation with her and tell her a little bit about my situation. And thankfully, she was really kind and understanding and was like, I get it. We all make mistakes. So now I have my own place. Navigating friendships has been hard. I have one very close friend who's here and I've over the past three months started to try to make friends. It's I'm just incredibly wary of everyone and what they might be doing. Not that they would intentionally do something to me, but most people drink or smoke pot. I mean, I know I would if I could, but I, I can't be around it. I can't run the risk of being in someone's car and they forget they have weed in it. If we were pulled over, I'd go back to jail and my parole would be revoked. I isolated myself for the first probably six months. It was hard being, I guess, a young adult because still like the, I guess the crowd is like to go to a bar, to go to a club or to go have drinks and learn that that's not what I do. I'm sober. I don't drink alcohol. Meeting people has been hard. I would imagine it's almost, it would almost border on paranoia. Yes. Not, you know, being so concerned that you don't accidentally, because you, you said you, you were originally sentenced to eight years and you Mm -hmm. did two years, but you're really, you're doing your whole sentence. It's just the last six years are out on parole. You're, that's why it's 2028. I did 14 months inside. So the remainder, I guess I'm coming up, I guess I've gone now two years. But it's still parole. And if you violate that parole and commit a new charge, you will go back and you will not see parole and you will serve the remainder of your sentence in prison. So it's like, it's just not worth it. And my dad has been able to, and my stepmom helped me a lot on like in me making friends. I always run everything by them, like probably too much, but. I'm sure they don't mind. Yeah, they, thankfully, my stepmom is a great sport when I call about literally everything all the time for advice. But my dad's helped me out and like, because I'll be like, well, you know, I was invited for some friends to go to this, but there could be people there drinking. And what if somebody that I'm with starts acting crazy because they're on, because they're drunk and it draws attention? And my dad's like, okay, he's like, I understand that you're being careful. He's like, but I don't want you to hold yourself up and not ever meet people. He's like, I get it being careful. He's like, but also don't let your anxiety and what ifs drive you away from ever 
experiencing friendships. So what do you do if you don't go out with friends to clubs and stuff? Do, have you gotten other hobbies or how do you how do you spend your time? I got into painting, so I do a lot of DIY crafts, which has taken it's been very good for me, very therapeutic to take on something that I didn't have any experience with. It was more of a challenge to myself to follow through with something that I was not good at because I'm, I have a character default to quit when I try something once and it doesn't turn out perfect. So in challenging myself, I've actually become okay at painting. I'm not like, you know, Picasso, but it's, it's been therapeutic. I still go to therapy every week. Going to support groups like NA, AA, Al-Anon, spending time with my family, spending a lot of time with my cat. I've had to, I've found ways that are filling up my time, but I'm still learning how to be social or what that will look like and not being scared to try. Yeah, you got to just ease into it. How did this whole experience affect your relationship with your dad? It allowed me to have a relationship with my dad that I would not have. I don't know if we would have ever had any sort of relationship if this wouldn't have happened. And having an adult relationship with a parent is really awesome and getting to know my dad over these past five years and him getting to know me and realizing like we're very much alike. We've never been closer than we are right now. Uh, she's an incredibly young woman. She impresses me every single day. I think that she is sorry for how things went between us. And believe me, I was no, uh, I was no altar boys in terms of uh, how our relationship went and how things went with her mother and I. I was an immature dad when, when we first had Sarah. I was young and a lot of things I wish I could do over in terms of that and things that I missed out on. But we both looked at where we were and where we are today. And, you know, I think that I'm a, a sounding board for Sarah. She leans on me for advice and I'm constantly impressed with her. Having a father figure that I rely on and include in my life has set so many standards for me of like whenever I do choose to be in a relationship like a romantic one my stepmom and my dad set an amazing example of what that is supposed to look like having a dad is really cool like I mean it's not like I didn't have him before but putting in the effort on my part and including him in my life has changed it all for the better. And it makes everything that had to happen to get to this point worth it. You know, I can't help but think of the comparison of someone in the family dealing drugs, being heavily involved in that world, and a close family member being a drug enforcement agent have you guys ever watched Breaking Bad? We love Breaking Bad. We love it. My dad and I just, every, and I'm someone who watches it quite a few times. We were very excited to watch Better Call Saul together and just be involved in like the entire Breaking Bad universe. But like every time, I guess, spoiler alert, if anyone's not watched it, but when Hank dies, I'm like, turn it off. This is like 
seeing my dad, like, this is my dad. Yeah, you're Walter White and he's Hank. Yeah. And it just, I'm glad that ours ended differently and we're both alive and better, but we love Breaking Bad. And that's a, a fun aspect that we can tease each other about. Sure. It's a connection. Yeah. Did this experience affect his job at all? His career? No. Thankfully, DEA was understanding of the situation and allowed my dad to deal with that privately. He has retired since then and has working, doing at a different company now, non-government. So he's retired, but he likes working. What's next for you? You're doing some public speaking and what, what do you have in mind going forward? I really enjoy when I do get to public speak and be involved in like teen academies and get to speak to our younger generation. I think I resonate with them best because I'm like, I was not you. I was you not that long ago. I can hear is how it doesn't matter of your socioeconomic status, where you were born, what your parents do for a job. Anybody can fall into addiction. There's this preconceived notion that it's like, oh, well, if you were socioeconomically disadvantaged, that's who's going to fall into drugs. I'm like, drug addiction is not bound by race, time, or wealth. It can affect anybody and don't think that it won't be you because it will. So I enjoy talking to teens and I do some parent talks also. And I just try to talk to them about what my experience was and what I think could help someone else. Like I know it was obviously not my parents' fault, any of the choices that I made, but I can speak from a teenager's perspective and have a close relationship with your kids, not just asking them, you know, hey, what'd you do for school? And I know as a teenager, you know, they, they're trying to find their sense of independence. I'm like, and while they might push you away, they really do want a close relationship with you. Keep pursuing them and get on their level. Like if your kid loves video games, grab a controller and ask them to play two player and just get on their level so that you can really get to know them and know what's going on. Because we build up walls as teens and we think we have it under control, but you definitely need that parent to just be there for you emotionally and it will make your kids want to come ask you for help. If you'd like to see the full transcript for this episode, or if you want to see pictures of Sarah, including the booking photo that went viral, you can get all of that in the show notes at whatwasthatlike.com slash 136. Sarah mentioned doing some public speaking to parents and kids about her story, and her father Bill often goes with her to those events, and he told me he really enjoys that. She and I have done those together, and I sit there and listen to her speak, and I'll tell you the first time she did it, when I actually sat there and watched her bear her soul and become very vulnerable in front of a group of strangers. It was, uh, to say it was impressive doesn't really do it justice. I think she really made a difference with some people. And here's a voicemail that came in recently. Hi there, my name is Jessica. I just wanted to call and say I'm loving the show. I just started listening to the podcast last week. It's been suggested a few times before through ad reads on other podcasts. And I finally added it to my podcast app, and I'm hooked. Thank you for the work you put into the episode, Pratt. I love that you include guest info, pictures or videos, entire transcripts, and more on your website. 
It really helps connect us to the stories. It's added content that we just don't get with other podcasts. I love that you allow the guests on the show to tell their story in their own way. I've never felt so impacted by the stories I've heard. I haven't been able to get some of people in the episodes out of my head since listening. Thank you. And if you have a comment, you can record it on your phone and email it to me. Or you can call the podcast voicemail line anytime, day or night, at 727-386-9468. One of the things I get regularly in my email are people sending me their own story, wondering if it would be a good fit for a podcast episode. And usually I can tell right away if it would work or not. So if you have a story that you think might work, go to the website, whatwasthatlike.com, and click on the form to send in your story. The more details you can provide, the better. I can't necessarily respond to every one of them, but I do read all of them. But today, I also wanted to let you know about some of the more specific stories I'm looking for. So just in case you may have personally experienced one of these things, or maybe you know someone who went through this, here are a few things I'd like to cover. I'd like to talk to a prison employee who is or was in charge of executions. I'd like to hear someone's story about inheriting an island or a castle from an unknown relative. I'd also like to hear from someone who survived being a passenger in a train when it derailed, or being a passenger in a car when it was hit by a train. And then this one, which is really sad, and we hear about this happening here in Florida. Sometimes a parent will be driving somewhere with their baby or small child in the back seat of the car, and they'll get to their destination, or they'll arrive home and go inside and forget the baby is in the car. So many times that happens, and the child doesn't survive because of the heat. So much to talk about with a story like that. And to hear it from the parent's perspective, I think, would be really intriguing. So if any of those things have happened to you or someone you know, I'd love to hear about it. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. And now, we're at this week's listener story. Every episode ends with a story that's about 5 to 10 minutes long, and it's sent in by a listener about something interesting that happened to them. This listener story is about a family nightmare. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. In 2000, my boyfriend and I bought a house where we lived with our kids from previous marriages. Life was good at first, but within a year, it had changed dramatically. He had become very manipulative and controlling. His daughter was a master manipulator as well and had become a handful. Still, I thought I could make this work. My boyfriend was an only child and came to the United States in 1970. I was very unhappy and was planning on moving out with my daughter when he was diagnosed with cancer. I felt obligated to stay and take care of his kids. In 2004, he went through a stem cell transplant and had to move in with his parents for a month. Upon arriving home, things got worse each day and he fought me daily on taking his medications. He was in and out of the hospital weekly. I was teaching full-time and taking care of the house and kids and making the hour drive daily to the hospital in the evenings. 
During one of the visits, his parents had brought in a lawyer who was a longtime family friend. He was there to do a living will. In the will, my daughter was to receive his SUV, which she drove to and from school. I was to get the house and only have to pay property taxes. In the event of his passing, I was willing to raise his kids, even though we weren't married. Shortly after that visit, he passed away. The lawyer was there the day he passed, and within minutes of his passing, my boyfriend's parents asked that I take the kids and leave the room. The very day after he died, his parents told me that my daughter and I had 48 hours to move out of the house. They had changed the will, which I don't think was legal. In the ensuing days, they went to my daughter's school where they took off the license plates so she could not drive it and took them off my car as well, stating that their son had purchased the car and I had no right to it. My daughter moved into her best friend's house and I stayed in a motel for 10 days while looking for a place for us to live. My sister gave me her car to use until I could purchase one. They had changed the locks on the house and I ended up having to call the police and show ID so I could pack up as much of our belongings as possible under their supervision. His parents watched my every move. They also told me that at the time, they took our husky to a shelter and would not tell me where. I went through a living hell for two years after he died because they totally turned my boyfriend's kids against me, and they seemed to take pleasure in leaving threatening hate messages on both my daughter's and my phone's. I'm telling you this story because for anyone that is listening that has gone through death or a traumatic experience, stay strong and take each day one at a time. Time does heal all wounds and life does get better. Thank you, Scott, for listening to my story.